0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. Putting a price on human life. Economists do it all the time. But how does someone who's also an ethicist and a man of faith negotiate this dilemma? That's ahead. Now, Australia's National Anti Corruption Commission has begun its work. It's put on notice politicians and public officials who might be tempted into unethical, if not criminal, conduct. But the head of the commission has also warned politicians don't use me to smear your opponents. So is there a risk of criminalising traditional politics? Because politics is always transactional, we're offered public services in exchange for our votes. Dr Kate Harrison-Brennan, head of the Sydney Policy Lab at Sydney University, has studied political ethics.
0: Well, it's somewhat cartoon-like, isn't it? That idea that corruption involves bags of money being put down on a table. What we've developed as an appreciation of just how wide the ambit can be of corrupt conduct and there's been obviously also more prominent public conversation about what that might entail if corruption is essentially about the misuse of entrusted power for private gain, or that's how you know Transparency International would define it, we then have our eyes open to a whole lot of ways in which entrusted power might be misused and diverted for private means. So I think there's a greater public awareness of what that might involve, not just the money bags on the table.
1: In the context of the new National Authority Against Corruption, people have been talking about electoral bribes. This is real politics, though, isn't it? Are we at risk of criminalizing politics if politics is the is the act of promising voters something in return for their support could this conceivably constitute a bribe an electoral bribe yeah.
0: What that takes us into the territory of considering is how representative members of parliament can reflect the interests of their electorate, but how they're actually held within the checks and balances that are natural to our system on which the public relies to ensure that those interests are mediated to make sure that public goods are used for public purposes. I think in New South Wales this has grown in prominence as an issue. Last year ICAC put out a report as part of the process that was known as Operation Jersey, that looked into this practice of pork barrelling. Unfortunately, that would become quite endemic within the state of New South Wales. It delved into this practice in quite a lot of detail, looked at when a benefit is sought for an electorate, the political gain that an elected member of parliament should be seeking should only be something that they spoke of as a sidewind. It shouldn't be the main purpose. Of giving a grant or seeking a benefit, getting something built in that electorate. And so it's these nuances that are really important, both for the practice of public officials, but also for the public to understand. And it's this type of reflections at the centre of what it means to have integrity in public life.
1: Isn't all politics, though, Kate, to some extent, transactional? Maybe the voters even participate because they often elect a sort of a big, promising, big spending politician because... Because the voters know we're going to get something out of it, a new rail link, a new bus service, a new hospital. It's all part of the deal, a sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink.
0: Ultimately, what we're talking about is how public good is directed and public resource. And if political theory, above all, is about how we relate to one another, there are various cultures that we think are acceptable to ensure that people are represented, that their interests um, are reflected through participation in political processes. But it's quite a different thing to engage in horse trading of a type where there's that entrusted power that we spoke of previously is actually directed for private gain. And when we reflect on practices of pork barrelling, however, endemic they might have become in particular jurisdictions. The key there is that the public expects or should have reason to expect there'll be things not just like guidelines for how grants are allocated, but there is appropriate distribution of public goods and that that is transparent and open to scrutiny for a parliament and hence why there have been moves to not just have guidelines for these things, but also legislation in states like New South Wales.
1: I'm thinking of this debate that's going on, for example, in New South Wales with the um, inquiry into the former Premier and it found that There were grants made to a couple of big projects in the electorate held by a former MP with whom she was in a relationship. One of those was a conservatorium in the Riverina. Now, it's arguable that you don't get much bang for your buck out of a conservatorium in rural or regional Australia. But at the same time, don't people in regional and rural Australia also deserve the same sorts of services and were a bureaucrat to simply assess this on a sort of cost-benefit analysis, it might not happen and an electorate misses out. This is where the sort of political corruption and ethics argument clashes a little bit with practical politics, doesn't it?
0: What is required here is fit-for-purpose procedures for distributing public resources. And so what you're pointing to here is we know that there is underinvestment in regional rural remote Australia. Unfortunately, the circumstances that have been laid bare in in New South Wales point to the use of public resources for private gain. So that's kind of what ICAC was speaking about, that any benefit given to your electorate should only have a kind of side wind positive effect for you politically. It shouldn't be the determining factor. But you also speak to the underinvestment in locations where value for money may not be the meaningful metric there to be used. And so without mixing the two things, what it does point us towards is when there is significant inequality, even within a country, it is likely that in order to provide public benefit to people in in areas of greater disadvantage, that people will seek to subvert processes. And what we should be doing in Australia is being proactive about ensuring that Value for money is not the primary metric being used in some of these public decisions. We know that corruption and misuse of public office thrives when there's unequal distribution of resources, when it's very difficult for citizens to access services in a reliable way. And so now we've got these major new piece of the kind of integrity architecture in place with the National Anti-Corruption Commission. It's now time really in Australia to turn to those next-order actions that need to be taken, and one of those should be addressing significant inequalities within the country and pockets of disadvantage where we know that resources won't be distributed in a way that's for the common good, relying only on our forms of electoral representation.
1: When politicians make self-serving decisions... I always hear the sort of push to say, well, independent public servants, independent experts should make these decisions about where we spend the money. But who should make those decisions? Because at least with politicians, dodgy or not, you do ultimately get to pass public judgment on them at an election. We don't have that same power, do we, over an anonymous bureaucrat, no matter how expert?
0: I think that assumes perhaps a little bit too positively that These types of decisions be laid bare in public Mm. uh, scrutiny. If they are made by elected representatives, and we know that without these kind of key institutions that are inquiries into corruption, that that's simply not the case, that there can be cultures that develop where there is misuse of public funds. We'd best not set up a dichotomy between elected representatives and public officials. What public officials can do so well is to bring to bear the evidence base for the appropriate use of public funds to create the maximum benefit in a kind of thoughtful framework for measuring that. 80% of Australians are interacting with government officials in the direct provision of services you think of accessing Centrelink or Medibank or even using their passport at the border. These are all the ways in which most Australians are interacting with public officials. We then rely within our Westminster system on a very trustworthy public service that's fit for purpose. And I think the question is then how do you best create a workforce that is able to give frank and fearless evidence-based advice to decision makers and to work in a unified way that is not kind of pulling at odds with one another. That's the next kind of frontier for reform and building a public service that can be worthy of the trust placed in it by the Australian public.
1: Doesn't Transparency International also suggest that too much bureaucracy, too much red tape, too much time taken to make basic decisions can add to corruption?
0: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the you know factors that is most commonly spoken of in developing countries when it seems impossible for citizens to go about their daily life working through government services as they're uh, laid out. And that heightens the propensity for people to give bribes or engage in informal means of getting the services that they should be able to access. And so that's one thing in Australia that can be considered is How do we redesign services to be customer-driven or citizen-focused so that we reduce the propensity for people to seek workarounds? Transparency International reports globally on the percentage of people who have offered a bribe to a public official At last glance in Australia, it's around 3%. So it's not Mm non-existent. We'd want to get that percentage lower and lower. And the easiest way in which that can be done is ensuring that um, red tape is reduced so that the incentives are not there for people to seek workarounds.
1: Always good to have you back on the program, Dr. Kate Harrison-Brennan. She's the director of the Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. And Kate is also an expert in government and public ethics. Thank you so much for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report.
0: Thanks so much, Andrew.
1: Some news out of the Vatican, Pope Francis has met with Stella Assange, the wife of Australian WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. He's in jail in the UK awaiting extradition to the United States. Assange faces up to 175 years in prison if he's convicted for publishing military and diplomatic secrets, which he says the public had a right to see. Stella Assange said Pope Francis had, quote, provided great solace and comfort to her family and had written to Julian in Belmarsh Prison. Now, like a religious ritual, every month Australians with mortgages and small businesses await the decision of the Reserve Bank as to whether they'll hold or raise interest rates. But one faith-based organisation is offering loans with zero interest to tide people over with payments they're struggling to meet. The Good Shepherd Sisters in Melbourne has been running the scheme for 40 years, but the demand today is especially great. Dr Dave Vickery is the Client Services Manager.
2: Good Shepherd runs a a, a no-interest loan scheme in conjunction with approximately 160 other not-for-profits across the country, and we deliver the no-interest loan scheme into 600 locations in that space. The idea behind the NILS loan is really a loan up to $3,000. Most of the loans are $2,000, but some on special occasions or exceptional circumstances can go to $3,000. And the idea behind it is that there is no interest and there is no fees at all, so you actually pay back what you borrow. And it was really from the ideas of the Good Shepherd Sisters almost 40 years ago now, where they actually thought, wouldn't it be good if such a system would work? And at the time, they were advised by probably the business advisors and legal advisers that it'll never work, you'll never get your money back. But I think over time, that has been proven to be wrong. The sisters originally put $20,000 into the no interest loan scheme 40 years ago of their own money. And I would be pretty confident some of that money is probably still circulating today.
1: Yes. Now, what is, though, as far as they were concerned and today, the kind of Catholic or Christian impulse behind this? Because the Good Sisters, they're a Catholic order of nuns.
2: We're a Catholic order of nuns, but they also have a focus on women, children and families. That's what Good Shepherd is all about. And I think the Good Shepherd sisters were really focused on the vulnerabilities of that cohort and really wanting to make a difference to uh, women, children and, and their families to make sure that they were able to achieve the very best outcomes they could. So... The no interest loan scheme really is a way of actually assisting in that space.
1: Who, especially in 2023, 40 years on since the establishment of this scheme, have you noticed applying for these no interest loans?
2: To be eligible for a no interest loan, Andrew, you have to, as an individual, earn up to $70,000 a year or 100000 as a couple. You might have been a victim-survivor of family and domestic violence in the last 10 years or so, and you may also then have a healthcare card. But we see people from all over the country accessing the no-interest loan scheme, and certainly members of the Aboriginal community, people with disabilities, A large number of women with children, particularly single women with children, are the types of people who are currently accessing the no interest loan scheme.
1: When we think about it though, Dave, I mean, $70,000 for an individual, $100,000 for a household, these aren't poverty level wages. I guess what I'm wondering is, are we now seeing financial stress so great that it is creeping up the income scale into the middle class it's become so stressed?
2: Yes, Andrew, I think that's a point well made. We are seeing that. I think probably the cost of living, as people know, inflation rises and interest rates are actually impacting what we're probably calling as a, a group of people who are newly vulnerable, who haven't previously been exposed to not being able to pay utilities, not being able to go to the types of things that they want to be able to do with their families. And they're actually really making some choices about how they spend their money. We're also seeing a lot of people now impacted by buying now pay later systems and we often have many clients who come to us with buy now pay later loans and some of them are saying you know when they can't buy the basics that's what they're looking for in terms of those buy now pay later loans some of our clients often have more than one loan that actually can actually trap them in a debt cycle and then they come to us seeking assistance through a nils loan but nils is not a debt for debt consolidation for many people, it's uh, white goods. It's about things that they might want to be able to afford in their family. It might be a laptop, might be school uh, materials and that kind of thing. We don't pay alone the cash directly to an applicant. It goes to a third party. For instance, if you are wanting to purchase a fridge, we would pay the company that would actually sell the fridge.
1: You mentioned those payday lenders in fact, there have been numerous government inquiries into them. It's a pretty stark contrast. You've got a no interest loan. Some of these uh, places are charging five, six, seven hundred percent on loans as they accumulate.
2: Nils is absolutely a stark difference to those organisations and those loans. You know, as I said earlier on, it is no interest, no fees. You only ever pay back what you actually loan. Most of the loans we actually issue are around about the $2,000 mark. They're mostly for things like white goods, household goods, educational goods, but we also have NILS for vehicles as well. And that's a loan of up to $5,000 for a vehicle that allows people to get their independence back and then get to things like employment and education. A normal NILS loan has a term over two years. A NILS for vehicles loan has a
1: term over four. What if you can't pay the loan back, though, Dave? What happens then?
2: We have a very low rate of people who don't pay back. So most people are really work hard to pay their loans back and when people do get into financial situations you know other things happen in their lives there might be a crisis or something like that we work with them to actually make sure that we have an arrangement they can actually meet to actually secure the payment of the loan so we have a very very low non-repayment rate because we work with the clients and the clients like to be able to repay the loans because they like the sense that their money um, that they're repaying is going back into the system for others to get loans as well.
1: How much money would you have? have out there in the community at any given time how much money in loans
2: I couldn't give you that exact figure but it's multiple millions
1: and where did the original money come from I know that the loans now replenish themselves as people pay them back more than 95% as you say pay them back but where did the money originally come from
2: As I said, in 1981, when the Sisters first thought about it, it came from the Sisters, but for the last 20 years, the National Australia Bank has been partnering with Good Shepherd. The National Australia Bank underwrites the loans that we write as part of NILS.
1: Dave Vickery of the Good Shepherd Sisters in Melbourne. During the pandemic, many doctors in public hospitals faced tough decisions over who and what to treat. Resources were stretched to the limit, Now, health funding is always fraught with big ethical decisions. They're especially challenging if you have a religious belief in the value of human life. Professor Stephen Duckett is one of Australia's leading health economists. He once headed the Commonwealth Department of Health He tries to answer these questions in a new book, Healthcare Funding and Christian Ethics, and he leans heavily on one very famous passage.
3: I look at one of the most frequently quoted, and some might say one of the secular parables of the Bible, that is the parable of the Samaritan, sometimes called the parable of the Good Samaritan or the Compassionate Samaritan or the Foolish Samaritan, all (laughs) all the terms that have been used. What I say is you can look at that parable... And you can see principles that come out of that parable. The first thing we know about the Samaritan is he was moved by compassion. Well, obviously, compassion is something we ought to be thinking about in our priorities and our principles. Then Jesus says, well, who who is it who we should be looking to? And Who is my neighbor? Who is yep. my neighbor? And the answer from the lawyer was, well, the one who showed mercy. And so we should be inclusive. It's a parable with teachers. The Samaritan, the last person you'd think would be helpful to someone on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, was this person who was from a people who were disregarded. So it's a parable about inclusiveness, about justice, about equity. And finally, we have the innkeeper and we have the Samaritan giving money and saying, well, look after this person till I'm back. So it's a parable about stewardship. So I distill these three principles out of that single parable. You've got to have a basis for your ethical principles. And the
1: Samaritan parable, I think, is a good one. Yeah, but it's also a parable in a way about uh, discernment. The Samaritan's charity was not endless, was it? No. The Samaritan said, you know,
3: you can have a, a couple of pennies, which was a, a lot of money, and what it shows is an issue of trust. That is, the Samaritan felt he could trust the innkeeper, and the innkeeper felt he could trust the Samaritan to come back and to actually look after them. and And so I think part of stewardship is this issue of trust. We don't have unbounded money. The Samaritan doesn't have unbounded money. So we've got to think about what are we saying as a society we ought
1: to be spending on health care and recognising there are limits. This goes to the classic argument of an economist, and you're one of this country's leading health economists, but it is this question of efficiency. But when we're dealing with health, we're dealing with life and death, we're dealing with pain, we're dealing with severe pain often, surely we just spend what we have to, don't we? certainly as individuals, we
3: should be doing what we can and to help an individual. But as a society, we've got to actually make priority choices. Not every drug is lifted on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. We make a choice about which drugs are listed. In making that judgment, we say, How much does this drug cost and what do we as a society get for it? Using cost-benefit analysis, how much does it actually yield? And so we make a priority choice in the same way we make priority choices when we as individuals go to the market or, or anywhere else. We decide what we're going to spend money on. The same is true in healthcare.
1: There's long been this argument among philosophers, I suspect also among economists. It certainly came up during the pandemic Whose life do we save? It's a very, very thorny issue. What does Christian ethics tell us about the choice we make if we have limited resources on whose life we save? Of course, every individual
3: is formed in the image of God. And so we've always got to be thinking about individuals and who they are and what they want and what their priorities are. And so when we're looking at an individual we have to think about that individual that person in front of us but we have to also be saying to the individual you are never going to live forever (laughs) this is not what happens your life is bounded and we have to be honest with individuals and say if we give you this treatment it may mean you're not able to talk to your family anymore and you might live an extra three weeks there are trade-offs and we have to involve and be honest with people
1: about what the trade-offs are in treatment i remember though during the early days of the pandemic stephen discussions were being had as to well who is going to make the greater contribution to our society if we spend limited resources saving people
3: yes it was a terrible time
1: andrew and
3: we saw those images of italy where people were not able to get intensive care beds people were not able to go to hospitals and people were saying look I've lived a good and fruitful life. My intensive care bed could be for someone else. We were making those terrible choices and society didn't want to make those choices. And society at the time, in Australia especially, said, we are prepared to go through terribly long lockdowns Mm -hmm. so we don't have to make that
1: choice. Do we actually put a dollar figure on human life? Because again, this is something that economists were talking about during the pandemic. Oh, yes. And you raise
3: it in the book, by the way. Yes, yes. The very essence of economic evaluation is looking at statistical lives and say I've used the Australian Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, how much does society as a whole get if we buy this drug and we pay X dollars per every person who uses the drug, so society subsidises the drug. Sometimes that is phrased as putting a value on human life. What it really is doing is putting a value on different conditions of life. If we have this drug, it means you've got less pain when you walk around. Or if we have this drug, it means you're less likely to have a heart attack. Or if we pay for this drug, we avoid infections and so on. And so what it's really about is saying, what is the benefit in terms of this health state versus that health state? And I think the summarising of that as putting a value on human life doesn't do justice to what actually is happening, because we're all created in the image of God. Each of us has, in a sense, infinite value in that regard. But that doesn't mean to say each health state is of infinite infinite value. Mm.
1: Let's raise another uh, rather thorny issue that you discuss in your book, and that is this notion of moral hazard. If we agree to treat every condition, aren't we just, for argument's sake here, licensing some people to live reckless and unhealthy lives? Is that a very moral or Christian thing to do? The concept of moral hazard is, as you described, that
3: if people aren't paying for it, they won't actually value looking after themselves or whatever. But I don't think that's the way people think. If you're a young person drinking too much and then driving you don't think about it as moral hazard. You're making stupid choices, I agree, you're making stupid choices, but I don't think the concept of moral hazard actually helps. And I think also if we have bulk billing general practice, for example, I don't think the fact that you don't pay for a general practitioner makes you go along to the general practitioner a lot more than you would otherwise because there is a cost to going to the general practitioner even though it not be a cash cost. You actually have to actually make time to do it. You have to sit in the waiting room and read 50 year old women's weeklies or whatever. But, but moral hazard, I don't think, captures the
1: reality of, of real life. Just as we wind up, Stephen, this raises another very important question that's come up, particularly in the last year as we've looked at, say, for example, bulk billing rates. Should medical care, medicine, health care, all the associated industries be money making industries? Is there something unethical about making money out of ill
3: health it depends what you mean by make money every dollar of health expenditure is a dollar of someone's income it's sometimes a salary it's sometimes a butcher who sells meat to the hospital it's sometimes the profit that a company makes from pharmaceuticals or whatever so we actually pay money for healthcare. so people are making money from healthcare. care some people make a lot of money from healthcare. The pharmaceutical industry, for example, has a greater level of profit than other industries. Procedural specialists get more income per minute than a nurse. The question is what is fair, but I think it's inevitable that people. Are going to get paid for providing health services, and they should be paid for providing health services. Yeah,
1: it comes down to, to this. There is no doubt that doctors particularly study many years, they give up a lot of income in the process of studying, in the process of gathering life-saving skills. Is medicine, though, a profession where you seek to become rich as opposed to simply a well-paid professional? Unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that there are some
3: specialties in medicine which pay very, very, very well indeed, and some, especially primary care, geriatrics, which don't pay as well. And we are seeing new medical graduates gravitating towards the high income specialties. I think it's the responsibility of government and the medical profession to say, is this the sort of medical practice we want? Shouldn't we actually be looking towards equalising the lifetime earnings across different specialties so that the choice is made not on how much money I'm going to make, but rather where I think I can make my best contribution. You know, I'm pretty skilled with my hands, so I might be a procedural specialist. I like interacting with people, so I might want to be a GP or a psychiatrist or a physician. So, you know, we've got to actually be trying to step back and say, is this what we want? medical
1: practice to look like. Is there any system in the world that you have studied, and as I say, you're one of this country's leading health economists, you've you've studied systems around the world that embodies the Christian ethic of paying for health care, of treating people both efficiently but also compassionately?
3: Every health system has strengths and weaknesses, partly based on where they come from, I think people forget that different health systems can have different strengths and weaknesses, even within a health system, even within the United States, which is probably overall the worst health system in the world, most expensive and one of the worst in terms of life expectancy. There are good parts of it. Canada, for example, there are no out-of-pocket costs. And people forget that it's possible to have a fee-for-service system fundamentally paid for by government where there are no out-of-pocket costs, but
1: the medical profession is remunerated fairly and that's in the Canada Health Act. Dr Stephen Duckett, he is a healthcare economist. Stephen's new book is Healthcare Funding and Christian Ethics, a fascinating book. Thank you for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Andrew. That is the show for this week. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Sinead Lee and Harvey O'Sullivan. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.